Thank you for that. And please keep Acts chapter 3 open in front of you. How many of you have heard of a person called Johnny Erickson Tata? You put up your hand. Uh, a few of you have heard of her. Uh, she uh, was born in 1949. Her father was called John. And uh, uh, this John will be interested to hear uh, that uh, he was part of the United States wrestling team. And uh, he represented the U.S. in the 1932 Summer Olympics. Well, uh, Johnny uh, took after her father. She was very active. She was sporty, beautiful blonde hair. And uh, in 1967, uh, oh, uh, sorry, she she was beautiful, active. She uh, wanted to be a physiotherapist, uh, so along similar lines to her father. Uh, but a diving accident in 1967 completely shattered her hopes and her dreams. While she was at the beach with uh, her friends, she uh, was uh, jumped into the water and in an instant she became a quadriplegic, wheelchair-bound for life at the age of 18 years old. Since then, she's been entirely dependent on all of the people around her for everything, her personal care, including bathing, dressing, grooming and toileting, uh, things that the rest of us do that we take for granted. Uh, for Johnny, getting up out of bed in the morning or getting up out of her chair and coming up on stage like I've just done without help uh, and someone else doing it for her would be a complete miracle. Uh, I remember reading her biography a few uh, years ago that I have here with me now and I just couldn't get through it. Reading about the trauma and the tragedy of what happened to her and what she went through. I, I couldn't look. I couldn't bear to look. Uh, it took me so long to get through. But thank God that Jesus is not like me. Can you remember the story that he told, the parable of the Good Samaritan, about uh, two religious guys who were on their way to worship in the temple and uh, there was a man who was a picture of human tragedy on the side of the road and they couldn't look. They couldn't listen. They couldn't see. They just kept going on their way. But then a Samaritan, a notorious, the, the bad guys, he stopped and he looked. And not only did he stop and look, he helped. And he, at great cost to himself, actually brought healing and restoration to this man. And then Jesus said at the end of the story, you go and do likewise. And so what we're going to see this morning is how the early church picked up on the compassion of Jesus and the power of the Lord Jesus. What we're going to see is that a spirit-filled church, a Jesus church, is actually able to look at human tragedy, all the evil, all of the hopelessness, and to be filled with the compassion of the Lord Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit to actually bring that God's compassion and God's power to bear on the human situation. And what we're going to see even more than that is that a spirit-filled church is able to rise up and do what Jesus did and that when it does, that there is leaping and jumping and praising God, that everyone can be filled with awe at what God is able to do through his great power and his great compassion when he turns tragedies into triumphs and turns poverty into praise. That's what it looks like to be a spirit-filled church. That's what it looks like to be 
a Jesus church. Last week in Acts chapter 2, we saw the spirit-filled community. And one of the things that Dr. Luke tells us is that everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Well, now what Luke does is that he takes that phrase and he actually now shows us what that looks like in a story in Acts chapter 3. And it's a story of the lame man. And it starts in verse 1. One day, Peter and John, this is two of the apostles, were going up to the temple. Now, they were literally going up because the uh, temple was up at the highest point on a, Zion, on, on a mountain, Mount Zion. At the hour of prayer, at three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. Now, the three core practices of a pious Jew were uh, praying, fasting, and giving alms to the poor. And so what better time for this man to beg than at the hour of prayer, and what better place for him to beg than at the temple? Because there would have been hundreds, maybe thousands of people going to the temple at the hour of prayer, and they would have doing one of the pious things, which was to pray in the temple. And on the way, what do they get? But the opportunity to do one of the other thing, three things a pious Jew does, and that is to give to the poor or to the lame. And so he's put himself in a very strategic place. Not only that, but it says it's at the beautiful gate. You see, there were eight gates that led into the temple, but the beautiful gate was the biggest and the most beautiful of them all. It was 23 metres high, if you can imagine that, with huge double doors. It was covered in Corinthian bronze with gold and silver inlays, and at three o'clock in the afternoon, it would have been glistening brightly in the sun. And every day sits the lame man at the beautiful gate. As tragic as Johnny Erickson Tata's story is, this man's story was worse. Firstly, he was born lame. He never knew what it was feels like to get up out of bed. He never knew what it was like to get up out of his chair. Only kings had chairs back in those days. But you know what I mean. Uh, they didn't have Medicare. They didn't have public health. If you were born that way, you were on your own. People had to fend for themselves. And, and one of the reasons he was outside of the temple was that people like that weren't allowed inside the temple, the cripple and the lame. And so along with this physical disability came this terrible stigma and this sense that when people would look at him, they would think, well, What's he done wrong to deserve something like this? So on top of everything else, he had this terrible sense of being shunned and being shamed. But I also want to say that within the Hebrew imaginary, this is not just a literal story. Or it is a literal story, but it's a picture and it's a metaphor within the Hebrew imagination of humanity itself. In other words, for every one person who's crippled physically, there are 10,000 people who are crippled emotionally. And for every person who's crippled emotionally, there's hundreds of thousands who are crippled 
spiritually. Romans 3 verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even the language of falling short speaks to the fact that every person is crippled by sin spiritually and is unable to walk in a way that pleases God. All have sinned and fall short. You might think you look pretty good compared to the person sitting next to you. Maybe not. But once you see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, you begin to see just how far you fall short and just how crippled you are spiritually. And so this lame man was crippled, literally. And, of course, because of this, the lame man couldn't come to church. But thank God that the church would come to him. Look at verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Now, what did the scribe and the Pharisee in the parable of the Good Samaritan do when they saw the man on the side of the road? They looked the other way. What do you and I sometimes do when we see a beggar or a person in need and we don't have time and we don't have money? What do we do? We look the other way. In fact, back in John chapter 9, the disciples and Jesus were walking past a man who was blind from birth. And if it weren't for Jesus, I think they would have just kept on going and looked the other way. But it says that Jesus looked at this man. And what we see in John chapter 9, this is, would have just been a year or two earlier. These same disciples who were walking with Jesus, a year or two earlier, Jesus looks at this man and it's very clear in John chapter 9 that what Jesus sees is a person, but what they see is a problem. Because do you know what they ask him? They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? So they don't see a person, they see a problem. And so what I love about this story would have been a year or two later in Acts chapter 3 is that Jesus is finally rubbing off on his disciples that when they walk past this man at this gate who was not blind from birth but lame from birth, instead of seeing a problem, they see a person. And of course Jesus is rubbing off on them because he's ascended into heaven and now he lives inside of them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what hope there is for us that we can learn through Jesus and by his spirit. But of course, from the lame man's perspective, the fact that they stop and they look at him intently can only be good news because what do people normally do when he's sitting there by the gate? What do most people do? They look the other way. But here they are, they stop and they look intently. But what I want you to notice here is that a spirit-filled church has a wonderful sense of expectation. Think about it. Why else did John and Peter stop and look at this lame man? We know that they didn't have money. Why did they look at him intently? Because there's something that they did have, and that was expectation in the presence and power of the Spirit of Jesus in the situation, that he could do something. And their expectation becomes contagious for him. Have a look at verse 5. And the lame man 
fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. You see, the Bible says a lot about our expectations. In Luke 11, Jesus says that when you come to God and ask, you should expect him to give wonderful gifts because he loves to give good gifts to the people that he loves. In Hebrews 11, it talks about coming to God, expecting that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In James chapter 1, it says that God gives generously to all without finding fault. In James chapter 4, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. The Bible says so much about our expectations that God loves to give good gifts. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. I think our church does often suffer from the terrible crippling malady of low expectations from God. You know, the great missionary William Carey once said, Accept, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And so once again, we see in this story that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine from a guy who asked for arms and got legs. He asked for arms and he got legs. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. Like when Kate Martin feels prompted by the Spirit to rearrange her work arrangements so that she can run Alpha and she prays big for 14 people to come along and instead God brings more than 40 people along to Alpha. Or like when Nick Russell decides to run a baptism and confirmation service hoping that he might get a handful of people coming along to be baptised and confirmed and God decides to bring over 20 people to come. Or like when John Pearman and Graham Whitley decide 20 years ago to reach out to a few refugees in Perth and 20 years later there's not one church called St Philip's in Africa, there's not two churches called St Philip's in Africa, there's three churches called St Philip's in Africa and a St Phillips Academy School with 250 kids who are being fed and schooled and nurtured through the love of Christ. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing what God can do when his people expect great things from God and get up out of their seat and attempt great things for God? I can't wait to see what God will do, for example, through Jill Taylor, who's just decided to step out and run a person of Jesus Bible study to follow up Alpha and how she's going to see the spirit of God and the presence and power of God come and meet her as she attempts great things for God. And so at this point, I want to pray a prayer that I've discovered recently through my nine-year-old daughter, actually, by Sir Francis Drake, who circumnavigated the world in the late 16th century and I want to pray this for St Philip's right now. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we've dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly 
to venture on wilder seas where storms will show your mastery. Where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. Lord, we ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes. Father, by your spirit, we ask you to fill us with strength, courage, hope and love. For we ask it in the name of our captain, who is Jesus Christ. Amen. These disciples, these apostles, they raise this man's expectations, verse 5, and then look at what happens in verse 6. Peter said, silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, probably for the first time, walking and leaping and praising God. I want you to see in this story how God's power is made perfect in weakness. What a picture of weakness this lame man was from the time of his birth, utterly dependent on others. And God's power is made perfect in his weakness. You see, God's power is always wrapped up in love. It's not for show. It's not for self. It's for others. It's for the last, the least, the lost, and in this case, the lame. But I also want you to see what Peter says to him. Did you notice? Silver and gold, I have none. He's saying, I'm I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy. I'm not powerful in the eyes of the world. But I have a treasure and I have a wealth. And I have a power that this world has never seen. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he walked. You see, here's the thing. A church without money that knows the presence and power of God by the presence of the Holy Spirit in their midst is incredibly rich. But a church that has a whole lot of money and doesn't know the presence and power of God through the dwelling of the Holy Spirit is lamentably, tragically poor. I want you to see this richness in the adjectives that Luke uses in Acts chapter 2 about the church. Everyone was filled with awe. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. This is the richness of the spirit of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 3, leaping and jumping and praising God, they were filled with wonder and amazement. You see, this is what the church is meant to be. And yet, there seems to be a pattern in the church today, at work in many churches, that with the increase of material wealth comes the decrease in spiritual power. And the reverse is also true, that with the decrease of material wealth seems to come the increase of spiritual power. Silver and gold, I have none. But in the name of Jesus Christ, I say, get up and walk. Fabiola was rich. She lived in the fourth century. She was one of the seven founding families of Rome. She was incredibly rich. And then she met the richness of Jesus, the pearl of great price. And she went and she sold everything that she had so that she could go and serve the poor and to take care of the needy. 
She founded the first public hospital in Western Europe in 390 AD. Historian John Dixon says that when she opened the hospital, the idea of free public health care was so new, so radical, that no one showed up. They just couldn't believe it was true. So she went out on the streets searching for the desperately ill and sometimes carrying them herself back to the hospital. Jerome was a distinguished church father at the time. He was also Fabiola's mentor. And here's what he said about Fabiola. She founded an infirmary infirmary and gathered into it sufferers from the streets, giving a nurse's care to poor bodies worn with sickness and hunger, maimed noses, lost eyes, scorched feet, leprous arms, swollen bellies. How often she carried on her own shoulders poor, filthy wretches tortured by epilepsy. How often did she wash away the purulent matter from wounds which others could not even endure to look at. She gave food with her own hand and even when a man was but a breathing corpse, she would moisten his lips with drops of water. Rome was not large enough for her kindness. Silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Brothers and sisters, where did she get this from? This desire to make herself poor in order to make others rich, to make herself weak in order to make other people strong. Well, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, He made himself poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Paul says Jesus was crucified in weakness and yet he lives and we live by God's power through him. Well, 800 years later, still in Rome where Fabiola lived and poured herself out for others, there was a theologian called Thomas Aquinas The story goes that one day he walked in on Pope Innocent II while he was counting a large sum of money at his desk and he boasted to Thomas Aquinas, you see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, silver and gold, I have none. Aquinas replied, true, holy father, but neither can she now say, rise up and walk. Brothers and sisters, Imagine what God might do through you if you were able to give up a little more silver and a little more gold. Imagine what it would look like for you. Would you like to see the presence and power of the Spirit at work through you? Would you like to see him show up in ways beyond you could ask or imagine? Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Let's pray.